Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we meet a BC teen who pioneered some very cool software that features in the new blockbuster Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse movie. He joins us to tell us how Lego inspired him to success. Author Tom Rackman burst onto the scene with his debut novel, The Imperfectionists, in 2010. Now the London-born and Vancouver-raised writer is back with a new book called The Imposters, wrapping a great story around a very basic question. Where do writers and novels fit in in this ever more cluttered, noisy, and confrontational information landscape? Canada's two biggest media chains have announced they are in merger talks. Post Media Network, Canada owners of the Vancouver Sun and Province newspapers, the Edmonton Journal, Calgary Herald, and many, many more, including the National Post and the Sun Chain as well, confirmed the possibility of a merger with Nordstar Capital, which owns the Toronto Star as well as the Metroland Media Group. Why? Why now? And what could it mean? for the country's media landscape. But first, a Competition Bureau report today unsurprisingly announced more competition is needed in the country's grocery business to help keep grocery prices in check. So what did they find and what are they proposing? We find out. Let's begin in the grocery aisles. A long-awaited report from Canada's Competition Bureau was out today looking into the prices we're paying for food. And the competition watchdog says more grocers are needed in this country to keep food prices down and to give us more choice. In the report, the Bureau says that uh, competition to help bring grocery prices in check would help. It says the gross margins of Canadian grocery chains have increased by modest yet meaningful amounts in recent years. The Bureau says concentration in the grocery industry has increased in recent years to the point that most of us buy groceries in stores owned by a handful of grocery giants. Loblaws, Sobeys and Metro collectively reported more than $100 billion in sales and $3.6 billion in profits last year. To improve competition and lower prices, the Bureau is recommending an innovation strategy to support new grocery businesses and expand consumer choice. It also recommends governments encourage the growth of independent grocers and the entry of international grocers into the Canadian market. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press. Well, those recommendations all sound somewhat logical. I'm wondering why they haven't been done before. The report finds that uh, food prices have been affected by a number of things. Higher costs for commodities, packaging materials, transportation, supply chain problems. We know all about those. Russia's invasion of Ukraine obviously sent grain prices way up. It also adds that there is a longer term trend here that predates those events. And that's of Canada's largest grocers increasing the amount they make on food sales. We just noticed that in the report. Carl Littler with the Retail Council of Canada says, though, the study's findings dismiss all those claims that are being made that grocers have been price gouging. It found modest margin growth, uh, driven primarily by by non-food items. We see this as sort of further nail in the you know coffin of Greekflation hysteria. Hysteria, no doubt, right. I don't know if I'd use that word, but still, I mean, I think we, all of us grocery shop every day, so, or most days, so we kind of know what's going on when it comes to prices. So what does this Competition Bureau report actually say? What does it mean? Stuart Smythe is Agri-Food Innovation and Sustainability Enhancement Chair at the University of Saskatchewan, and he joins us now. Stuart, uh, thanks so much for your time tonight. My pleasure, Ben. Pleasure to join you. This is an interesting report because I think a lot of people were waiting to see what the Competition Bureau would come up with. And um, what did you make of it? Well, yeah, I was I was hoping there'd be some nuts and bolts in it. But, you know, yeah. it was hugely disappointing because it, when 
the Competition Bureau said we need more companies to invest. So from an economics perspective, that means that there's barriers preventing companies or individuals or whoever wants to invest in new grocery stores from doing so. But the Competition Bureau report doesn't say anything about barriers to investment. Which kind of begs the question. It comes up with some interesting, interesting suggestions, but all of them are suggestions you think, okay, well, you know, support independent grocers. Well, we have independent grocers, but they find it tough to compete. Uh, support international companies coming in. Why aren't they already here? I mean, there are a lot of questions that it raises. And you're right, it didn't provide much in the way of answers. No, like, you know, there's, there's lots of barriers. I mean, I think it's a bit pie in the sky to think that we're going to entice um retail chains from Australasia or uh, United States more or Europe to, to come to Canada. You know, if, if our market was was um, very lucrative, they'd already be here. And, and federal and provincial governments have virtually no ability to influence companies to, to come and set up in the market. Yet, you know, things that federal governments do control are, are tax rates on corporations. So, so perhaps lowering tax rates on you know, independent grocery stores or stores below a certain square footage to give a little bit of a, a tax incentive to those smaller grocery stores. That would have been an innovative approach, but but absolutely nothing in the Competition Bureau report about any of those things. No, I mean, it, it does. The impact here on, on consumers, I, th- I think, is, I mean, they didn't go so far as to say that there's price gouging going on. And I think people were quick to point that out today. But as consumers, I feel like we're feeling the lack of competition. Um, what kind of impact is that having as we see sort of the consolidation within the system? The idea that almost all of us shop at three different grocery chains only. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it reminds me of my cell phone, right? Obviously. Yeah, yeah. It- and again, I think, you know, they missed a really good opportunity to go to those three chains and say, you know, we want, we'll, we'll protect the data, but we want some insights as to what percentage of your sales and your profits is coming, is derived from directly consumable food products. Because we know in the grocery stores, right, there's lots of things like laundry detergent or dishwasher detergent or mops and light bulbs, all those, you know, we can't consume those things. So, so break down for us the the revenue particularly the profit derived from you know your fruits and your produce and your meats and veg you know um bakery all those kind canned goods right give us the the distribution of your profit so that we cannot you know if profit from directly consumable foods was say 20 percent versus 75 percent as a consumer i have a much different reaction to to both of those numbers yeah, because the, the big grocery chains have been saying all along that they're making a lot of this profit off other stuff, pharmacy, pharmacy stuff, you know, like sort of shampoo and makeup and all those things uh, yeah. that, where they have big margins. But you're right. We don't actually know a lot about where the profits come from. So we're not in a position to make a really good assessment of whether or not we're, we're paying too much. All we know is that when you go elsewhere, you see more. I mean, I lived in London for a while and, and you know, Aldi and Lidl came in. They're European discount retailers. And, you know, there is a whole different there's you know there are several tiers of shopping experience grocery shopping experience in those places it exists to some extent here but not as much yeah it, and i think we're seeing consumers being a little bit more discerning right you you know you identified in the lead up there that you know a lot of consumers are shopping at at one of the three major retail chains in in the country yet you know talking to consumers um I think a lot of people are starting to to really pay attention to the flyers and online um, 
savings. And, and so instead of going to that one store, you know, once a week and buying everything for the household for a week, they're now breaking that up, right? And so they're they're looking and saying, okay, specifically we need want to get these items at, at this store and then, you know, later in the week we'll maybe pick up these other items because this sale kicks in on Thursday. And and so they're they're breaking that up a little bit, I think. Yeah. So, so if you look behind uh, what, you know, what's behind the sort of the thrust of this report, what, what do you think is missing? Just I guess this was an opportunity to really lay bare some of the truths about it, because I think there's a real appetite out there, no pun intended, amongst us consumers in this country to know what's really going on and to understand why uh, there isn't more competition within the grocery business. Yeah. And, you know, I, I come back to that point I made earlier that I think they they fundamentally missed a point to, to look at what the barriers are that are keeping investment out. Um, there's an awful lot of regulatory barriers in Canada, especially re- relating to interprovincial trade. So we've got trucking regu- regulation, re- regulations. We've got dual regulation at, at meat inspection plants. You know, there's been a number of really good academic and, and research institute studies over the last five years that highlight specific regulatory barriers. And, and and I think the the Competition Bureau really fundamentally missed an opportunity to lay out a strategy to government saying, you know, here's a list of 10 regulations that if they were cut or the, the barriers were reduced, that would potentially incentivize greater investment into the grocery retail space. But yeah, they, they didn't do any of that. Stuart, one of the things I found interesting is they looked at real estate practice, which was which I not that it came out of the blue because I think if you think about it, you can see how this works. Um, but grocers limit competition around them by using a special clause in their lease and so on. I mean, I think we see it in lots of different businesses. But they felt this was one way. If you sort of found a way to deal with that, that maybe new other grocers would pop up in and around some of the existing ones, or at least get rid of those deserts where there aren't uh, enough grocers to uh, to have meaningful competition. Uh, how big a problem do you think that one is? I think there's definitely some evidence that supports that. I mean, we could look at a lot of the malls in in residential parts of of all of the big cities and and malls want to have quite often a, a grocery store that that serves as an anchor in there and but yet there's only one grocery store, right? So so you know that uh whatever retail chain's moving in there is has you know negotiated a clause that they will be the only grocery relay, retail outlet in, in that um, new new mall development. So, so you know, looking at trying to find some ways to, to reduce um, some of the, the ability of, of property ownership to, to possibly facilitate some new stores, I, I, I think, you know, that's one place that, that the report does a credible job of offering a good recommendation. Right. They did propose something called an innovation strategy. That's, <laughs> I don't know how useful that is. That sounds like another, that sounds like another windfall for the consultants to me. But, uh, but anyway, what about encouraging independent grocers? Cause one feels like if there were lots of money to be made in groceries, more people would get into it, but it's this question of scale. And, you know, a few big organizations in this country have scaled up to a certain extent that no one else can really compete. I mean, there are exceptions to that, but not a whole lot. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you mentioned that that there are a number of independent grocers, and but that's the challenge, right? Is that to, typically when when you're buying large volumes of things, the the greater the volume you, you buy, the the more of a discount you get. So if if Sobeys 
is buying, you know, toilet paper from from the supplier and they can order, you know, 100,000 pallets, then then they'll get a considerable discount. Whereas, you know, a one off or 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 maybe a, a, a chain that's set up in one city that owns a handful of stores, they would be lucky to get any discount at all based on the the smaller volume that they would be buying across the, their number of outlets. So so certainly in, in, in a lot of these instances, the, the sheer size of these national chains gives them a lot of power in the marketplace. Yeah, five grocers now control roughly 80% of the retail market in this country. I mean, it, it is the, when it's when you see it like that, it's it's not surprising, but it is staggering. What about discount? What about international organizations? Clearly, they will have looked at Canada and thought yes or no, right? I mean, it, they had to have, you know, we're, we're not we're not on an unknown quantity for these big uh, international grocery chains that have set up in different parts of the world. Clearly, they've had a look at us and thought, meh, maybe not. Well, you know, certainly, you know, the European chains have, have probably done a, a, a bit of a cost-benefit analysis. And and I think, you know, just the size of Canada and the, and the smaller populations means that if companies did consider coming here, the likelihood of them setting up are probably going to be in Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver. You, very typical Canadian things, right, is the, the MTV um, scenario. And, and so would would smaller, more regional cities, you know, the Calgary's, the Winnipeg's, um, the Hamilton's, the Quebec cities, the Halifax's, would we see them wanting to set up there? And, and, and in those cases, I think that just the simple economics make it probably somewhat doubtful that, that they would want to locate there. So, you know, then you, the benefits of, of an additional chain moving to Canada would, would just accrue to consumers in those three cities. Yeah, I guess in that sense, there is examples, you know, I, I think of Richmond in, Van, in the Lower Mainland and near, in near Vancouver, where because, you know, they have a large Asian population, a lot of different grocers have come in because they see opportunity there. I guess that, therein lies the issue, right? They, this is not, this is a problem that exists in different shapes and forms in different parts of the country. Yeah, that's right. You, you know, we see a, a number of sort of these these grocery import stores, right? I mean, Traditionally, for a while, it was British stores. You're right. There's there's lots of Asian ones. Um, you know, you, you can pretty much you know there's there's a number of halal um, related stores in, in cities. So again, the, they serve a, a pretty small market, and and just given the the limited size of these stores, I I don't think they're quite the solution that the Competition Bureau is envisioning. Right. So I, I guess the Competition Bureau is calling for more competition, and that sh- shouldn't come as a surprise, but it doesn't do the, the rest of us much good. Stuart, thank you so much. My pleasure, Ben. You have a great evening. Well, today is Canadian Multiculturalism Day. And, you know, for the most part, you know, obviously, you, you know what that might mean. It's about respect and inclusion and all the things that really do matter in this ever-changing country. But like many days, it sort of comes and goes with some nice words from politicians, a bunch of press releases from the prime minister and different premiers and so on, espousing the new um what this day actually means. But I, we woke up this morning to a new political reality on the ground at the municipal level, which speaks a lot more about why this day matters than perhaps any kind words from a politician. Last night, Olivia Chow won Toronto's mayoralty by-election. It became the city's first woman and the first visible minority to lead post-amalgamation Toronto. In fact, she's the first uh, female visible minority to ever be mayor of Toronto. And that's a really big deal in a city that's often called the most diverse in the world. Her victory for her represents a high market 
her political career that spanned nearly four decades from her election as a school trustee back in the 80s. It's where I served the city with passion and love, where I worked hard to champion the well-being of children. And while I've been knocked down a few times over the years, yeah, just like you, I always got back up. Yes, indeed, she did. She replaces John Tory, of course. Uh, Phil Triadaphilopoulos, who is a political science professor at the University of Toronto, had this to say about it. We saw a significant change in migration patterns in Canada beginning in the late 1960s, and now we're seeing a transition to leadership positions, arguably too slow and still uh, with much to do. What this signals is that the institutions are beginning to adapt themselves. What really struck me this morning on this Multiculturalism Day is that Olivia Chow now joins other big city mayors in this country who represent visible minorities, including Ken Sim in Vancouver, Gianni Gondek in Calgary, and Amarjeet Sohi in Edmonton. In other words, four of Canada's five most populous cities have now elected mayors from visible minority groups, other than Montreal's Valerie Plante. She's the fifth. And it really does reflect the growing diversity in Canada's biggest cities. So are we witnessing a blip, or is this really a big shift in who big city voters are electing to represent them at all levels of government. And what could that mean for the future of politics in this country? Joining me now is Chi Wien. She's executive director of Equal Voice, which is a multi-partisan not-for-profit advocacy group whose mission is to support women and gender diverse candidates at all levels of government. Chi, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I noticed, looking back, that at one point you ran provincially in the same riding that Olivia Chow represented federally for a while, I believe. I think I have that right. Yes, uh, you did your homework, Ben. I did run as a a failed candidate uh, in uh, one of the elections. So, yeah, um, it's an important riding that is incredibly diverse and home to um, people from all walks of life and, you know, like a landing pad for many newcomers and many economic immigrants who are making their way in the Toronto economy. Yeah, I found that. I mean, I knew Olivia Chow's story from having covered NDP federal elections in the past. And of course, uh, she and her late husband, Jack Layton, she would often be a part of that campaign. She was a force in her own right. But her story, uh, you know, of, of coming to Canada from, from Hong Kong when she was relatively young, of living in, 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 you know, working class neighborhood, working her way up. I mean, that really, you know, she's maybe the first mayor to have that, that story, specific story. But it's the story of so many people in Toronto now. Absolutely, which is why I think it's been such a compelling win for uh, for many people, just in terms of seeing a kind of different perspective, different lived experience. Now taking top office uh, in our municipal government, it's uh, so it's something certainly people have been applauding and celebrating all day today. Is that uh, this this new reality for us politically? Yeah. And then I woke up this morning, I was looking across the country and thinking about Ken Sim in Vancouver, who, whose politics are very different from Olivia Chow's, right? So, you know, I mean, and he was, you know, he was born in Canada, but also his parents are, are from Hong Kong. Um, and then Jyoti Gondek, Amarjeet Soji in, in, in Edmonton, in, in Calgary and Edmonton. And here we are with the four of the five biggest cities in the country with mayors who represent visible minorities. And it feels like it feels like a big moment here. And I'm wondering how important it is. Yeah, I think it sends all kinds of important signals. But, you know, what's also important to remember is that every single one of these mayors brings a huge and incredible portfolio of skill sets and experience. 
um, and competency to how they do their jobs. It's why elect, uh, electors sent them to um, to lead the, these governments in the first place is not just because they are people of color, but they are people of color who are credentialed, who bring experience. And uh, so, you know, it's, um, you know, one of the other storylines out of the Toronto, uh, Toronto experience last night was that the top two candidates were two uh, immigrant women. Uh, and so between the two of them, 75% of the votes cast were cast for women. Um, so that's a pretty exceptional uh, and new reality uh, in terms of thinking about electability um, and whether or not you know women can win. Um, and it's clear now that um, we are ready to think about political leadership in a different way. And that's really, that's really exciting. Yeah. I mean, if you look at Montreal, if you add Montreal to that mix, Valerie Plant, of course, is the mayor of Montreal. I mean, it feels like there has been a big shift. And you're absolutely right. This has been a long time coming, right? These are these these are, are, are women and, and, and men who've built built their portfolios over many, many years. I mean, this has been we've been building up to this over time. Where do you think the change happened? Where, where, where do, when do you, do you think think cities started to, to reflect themselves in who they were electing? Yeah, I mean, I think about the Toronto situation, uh, the Toronto context, um, you know, up until this most recent election in um, uh, October of 2022, the council didn't look particularly diverse. Um, but in this most recent race, it sent uh, four, uh, four folks uh, who are people of color, including one woman who uh, wears a, a veil, Asma Malik. And so, you know, we're starting to see that kind of intentional um, support uh, from the progressive organizations in Toronto to supporting candidates that look more uh, more reflective of their communities, I think political organizers also see that um, there's there's winability in um, in backing and supporting candidates from those communities um, because there is a connection point and there's a reason to kind of rally and come come out and support. Uh, so I think that's part of the changing landscape of the conversation for sure. Yeah, and I think in each of these cities that has its own challenges. If you think of you know Vancouver, obviously, and 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 Toronto, clearly, that uh, bringing that perspective in could be a real help as well. I mean that that is a, that is a perspective that exists that has become more and more important within the city to understand, and it's important that you have leadership that has some insight into it. Absolutely, especially you know that we know cities as well are places where um, newcomers, immigrants, refugees are settling, and so those that experience around settlement, it it helps to have that um, have that in your frame of reference and have lived through that with your own family members or yourself, um, just to give you a kind of different eye view into a system that can feel really alien. And one of the things that I think it's really easy to forget is that. Governments and bureaucracies are designed uh, in service for people. And when we design them in a way um, that we center the experience and the needs of, of the users and the people who are accessing services, you know, the, the customers uh, of our municipalities, then we do a better job of actually getting more effective services out of our system. And so those lenses and that experience, that diversity, that business case is as important in the economy as it is in politics. Chiwen is with us this half hour. She's executive director of Equal Voice. We're talking about Olivia Chow becoming Toronto's mayor, the mayor of Canada's biggest city. Uh, she is now one of four uh, mayors from visible minority groups that are mayors of the biggest cities in the country, all but Montreal right now, in the top five most populated cities. We're just talking about the significance of that, what it means, what it doesn't mean. Uh, gee, I guess that's what I was trying to get to too. I, I don't want to read too much into this. Uh, I, you know, I was waking up this morning looking at thinking about Ken Sim winning in Vancouver last year and so on. Um, 
but we shouldn't, I mean, it, there's, there's still a long way to go, I suspect. Yeah, absolutely right, uh, Ben. You know, one of the things that we've been working on at Equal Voice and, this, and our organization's been around for about 20 years is, you know, looking at the federal house and where we are in terms of our progress there. And we're actually doing pretty poorly on the federal front. Um, we're only at 30% of gender representation, so 30% women in the House of Commons federally. You know, we have some provinces that are doing much better. Alberta actually just kind of knocked it out of the park and getting closer to uh, 40% in this last election election. Uh, uh, last month. So, you know, we, we are seeing some inroads, but there's a huge piece of work to be done to make sure that we're actually recruiting an incredible talent pool of, of women and men uh, to step up to serve uh, in office in our country. Yeah. How, how much do you think, I mean, we've seen lots of, of uh, people talking about it, different politicians talking about it specifically, I'm thinking of Catherine McKenna, uh, just sort of the toxicity around politics right now has led quite a few people to sort of say, you know what, especially targeted at women, uh, that they, they, they'd, they'd rather not. They're going to take a step back. I don't know if that's oversimplifying it. Uh, I know there are other things that could be done, but certainly the toxic nature of politics has driven a lot of people away, including uh, talented women who may otherwise consider a life uh, in, in, in the public sphere. Yeah, it's a it's a taxing job, that's for sure. You know, we've got a lot to thank our, our political leaders for and well often, you know, we it's really easy to criticize and to to you know, to quibble about the policy decisions or the choices they make. Uh, they're actually doing this in service of building our country and making sure that we have what we need. Um, but that piece around violence is, is something that we are certainly hearing lots of elected women speak about and certainly women of color. Um, uh, you know, being the targets of that. And so what they're having to do to make sure that they can, they and their teams and their families can be safe uh, while they do their jobs. And so I think we actually have a bit of a responsibility as citizens, as Canadians to try and step in when we see some of that behavior happening um, and, you know, do what we can to remind leaders that we do appreciate the things, the sacrifices they make to make sure that our governments are working effectively um, because we certainly, you know, we want to keep good people, talented people, good women in, in political life. It's one of the missions that we have at Equal Voice is not just getting them ready to run, but keeping them in politics. Yeah. What are some of the other, I mean, I, I noticed um, just a while back there was, you know, uh, Canada's parliament uh, became hybrid and you, you thought that was a good idea. Uh, I know there were some people who had different views of that, but you felt that that might encourage people who, especially in this big country that we have, I remember when I was a parliamentary correspondent in Ottawa, watching all the poor, you know, BC and, and Northern uh, MPs walk off for their eternal journeys home, right? Every, every week or so. Um, you thought that might help to bring more people and at least bring a more diverse group of people, regardless of their backgrounds. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things we do need to think about is the elected legislatures as workplaces and what we're doing to make these places more inclusive, uh, easier to manage, like in getting to some of those dynamics um, will help, we think, encourage more people to step up. Um, we need more people to want to run for office, um, particularly women, particularly people with different lived experience. Um, and so one of those pieces around hybrid just allows people to imagine, okay, well, Maybe, you know, there are some times when I can make sure I can still be in my writing, you know, in one extra night a week. Um, 
that means that I might be able to see my kid uh, make, you know, uh, one of one additional soccer practice and still be in the community. But we think of hybrid as like a tool in the toolbox, not for all circumstances, not all the time, um, where you negotiate with your um, with your with your your caucus and kind of work out those details. But if you have a really important community event, and it is critical for you to be there for the. 75th anniversary of uh, the, the, you know, a particular program or institution or school, you know, that hybrid flexibility allows you to do your job in service of your um, your constituents in a different way. And so it's the idea of those options, that flexibility, not all the time, but in uh, in opportunities that make, make sense. So, you know, if you've got a, you're recovering from uh, childbirth or you've got a newborn at home, being close to home for those first couple of weeks, that's a that's a thing that we want to make sure that families or elected officials with young families can consider uh, and think about. A last thought to you then on Olivia Chow's election. I mean, this is politics aside tonight. I think we're going to push whatever the policies aside, uh, because again, I think sometimes there's a mistake made. But you know, you know, Olivia Chow is, is very much of the NDP background. Ken Sim is not. I mean, there's a real diversity of opinion amongst can- candidates from diverse backgrounds out there. But a last thought on 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 Olivia Chow's election and what it could mean in best case scenario. Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly going to be a huge source of inspiration for people across the political spectrum to see a different face leading Toronto. It has been uh, a particular um, uh, picture for a while in the the Toronto context. So seeing that, I think, will help kind of continue um, with a larger conversation around diversity and inclusion uh, across senior leadership um, throughout our city. Uh, So that's a really important piece. Uh, and in terms of other impacts and outcomes, you know, uh, we'll we'll have to see how she does. Uh, she's got a huge challenge ahead of her. Toronto's got a huge budget hole to, to, to fix. Uh, so whoever is taking on this top job actually has uh, their uh, huge challenges ahead of them. And I wish I wish all the candidates the best, um, and uh, are wishing our mayor elect um, the best because we want uh, we want our city to be set up well and to work collaboratively uh, with all of us of government to deliver. Yeah, it's 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 far from an enviable job. Except from the outside, you look at it, you think, "Wow, there's a lot on on her plate." There's a lot on every big city mayor's plate these days. Uh, Chi Wien, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for speaking this evening. It was great. Well, this is big news today for a lot of you. Uh, it may impact the newspaper that you call your hometown paper, because whether it's Post Media or Nordstar Capital, which which owns the Star and the Metroland Media Group and so on, um, which which is the parent company of all these different papers, Hamilton, Toronto, and so on, um, it may impact you because late today we heard that uh, – they announced that they, the parent companies of the country's two largest newspaper chains are in merger talks. Post Media Network Canada has confirmed the possibility of a merger with Nordstar Capital, which owns the Toronto Star, also owns, as I was mentioning, the Metroland a media group. Post Media, you probably know, owns the Vancouver Sun and Province, the Edmonton Journal, the Calgary Herald, and Montreal Gazette. Um, Nordstar's portfolio includes the Hamilton Spectator and the Waterloo uh, Region Records. So lots of newspapers. Now, how important those papers are in your day-to-day life at this point, um, I don't know. 
But this is a big deal, right? Further consolidation potentially within what is already a shrinking media landscape uh, in this country. Uh, Jordan Bitov, who is with uh, North Star Capital, he's the head, said the viability of the newspaper industry in Canada is at extreme risk, especially in the small towns and communities that are important to this nation. By pooling resources and working collaboratively, we can ensure that more Canadians have access to trusted journalism and quality reporting. Does that ring true? Someone who will know is Mark Edge. He's media columnist for Canadian Dimension and author of The Post Media Effect. Mark, thanks for your time tonight. No problem. Tell me, did this one come as a surprise? I mean, I guess if you look at, at what's being proposed, it shouldn't. But anytime you see a headline like that, you always, I mean, if you're in the media industry, you always do a bit of a double take. Well, it's not really a surprise. This has been coming on for a while, ever since uh, Torstar was taken over by private equity players uh, three years ago. There were rumors then that uh, they might want to merge with Post Media because they seemed a little bit too conservative for the Toronto Star, which is Canada's largest and most liberal newspaper. I think that's why under this deal, it would be held at a separate company controlled by Bithoff. But Post Media has been in a, a crash dive for about the past year. They're well underwater on their debt payments, uh, they only made about $13 million in profit in their last fiscal year, almost $10 million of which came from federal subsidies, and that came nowhere near meeting their $30 million a year debt payments, which are absurdly held by their own owners, which um, are mostly New Jersey hedge funds now. So uh, this isn't really a, a surprise. The, the only question is, uh, what are we going to do about it? Yeah, what what are we going to do? I mean, I was, you know, thinking about Post Media, my hometown paper, the Montreal Gazette, I was reading recently, you know, they've had to change, they're sort of reducing their Wi-Fi because there's no money. They they don't have any editorial, they, they won't have op-eds anymore because there's no editorial staff left or very few. I mean, it's really so pared down to the bone. One wonders what is what the possible outcome could be other than something like this. Well, uh, something has to be done by by the federal government. We've reached a point now where, we would have one chain uh, being the only national newspaper chain in, in Canada. It was less than a decade ago, after all, that Post Media bought the second largest chain, which was Sun Media. So all of a sudden, they owned both newspapers in uh, Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, and Ottawa, and uh, two newspapers in Toronto of the four. Uh, now... Uh, we again have the first and second largest chains merging, which would give the the new companies 40, well, it would be three of the four Toronto dailies, and I calculate 42 of the country's 71 total daily newspapers plus 135 of uh, our 986 community newspapers. So uh, ownership concentration in the newspaper industry has, has just gotten to an unacceptable point uh, for the, you know, the um, diversity of, of, of viewpoints. And uh, I think the, the, the government has to step in. The, the, the competition bureau is totally useless 
of course. I call it the Prevention of Competition Bureau. But I think the, the government has to step in and say, if you want to do this deal, then you have to give something back. And I, I would say that um, in, uh, in addition to making the Toronto Star uh, held by a separate company, I think the former Sun Media newspapers should also be held by a separate company. All the tabloids across the country that used to provide some competition, when they bought them in 2014, they swore up and down that they would uh, they would keep separate newsrooms. Well, you know what happened to two years later, they merged the newsrooms. So I think that uh, they should uh, the government should uh, restore competition in four of Canada's largest cities by requiring the Sun tabloids and in Vancouver, the Vancouver province, I think, should be included in that. Perhaps it could be traded for the Hamilton Spectator, which doesn't really fit with the the tabloids. But um, uh, I I think this is an opportunity. uh, You know, uh, it's a standard business school technique to, you know, seek opportunities from threats. Well, now we have a major threat to diversity of opinion in this country. Let's take the opportunity to unwind things a little bit here. Yeah, because if you read between the lines, what, what, I, what I see here is that, listen, this is no longer a viable business. Therefore, we need to pool our resources. So it's not about concentration of, of editorial opinion. This is a business decision, and so be it. But you're pointing out the very real uh, ramification of that is that you end up with one newspaper chain owning everything. In, in most cities, you would have one one company owning most papers right across the country, outside of, say, you know, French Quebec and and so on. Yes, well, I've been I've been following this for quite a long time. I wrote a book in 2014 mm-hmm. about the uh, greatly exaggerated the myth of the death of newspapers, and I most recently wrote a book on the UK newspaper industry, and they're making the transition to hybrid digital print publications just fine over there, despite or perhaps because of uh, not receiving a bailout um, here. Uh, it, it's hard to tell because um, only a few of the newspaper companies are required to report their financial statements uh, publicly. Uh, the Globe and Mail isn't, but its publisher ha- has stated that they are doing very well indeed. They have about 330,000 online subscribers. Even their print edition is making an 18% profit margin. And this is because they've invested in quality content and built a a loyal uh, readership. The uh, Winnipeg Free Press and its very small chain uh, in Manitoba, they're a publicly traded company, so you can get their earnings online and and they're making a a fairly comfortable profit margin. Their revenues are going down, but they're keeping their heads above water. So post-media seems to be a bit of an outlier, and I believe it's because of the hedge funds, which took them over in 2010, have been following this harvesting strategy where they're just taking all they can out of the company. They've taken more than a half a billion dollars in interest payments uh, out of it since they uh, took it over out of the bankruptcy of CanWest Global Communications. And they're now to the point where they, they have so few subscribers, they're having to sell off assets just to keep their uh, interest payments up. So 
what I see happening now is, is it's, a, it's kind of a fast one. They pulled a fast one up a few years ago in 2016 when they rearranged their debt and actually, unbeknownst to most, got a new owner, which is New Jersey-based Chatham Asset Management, a rapacious hedge fund. I think they're trying to pull another fast one, and I think the government should call a halt to this. Mark, where do you think it goes from here? Because clearly this wouldn't have become public if it wasn't pretty far advanced, although everyone was sort of falling over themselves today to say it's definitely not a done deal. Oh, no, it's definitely not a done deal. They're still negotiating. The only reason this came to light was that there was some unusual trading in post-media stock today on the uh, Toronto Stock Exchange, so they had to put out uh, a release. But it's apparent from the wording of that release that they're they're still in negotiations, and this is far from a done deal. But it's uh, at about this point that I think that the government, like I say, should step in and uh, tell them that uh, if they want to merge the top two newspaper chains in Canada again for the second time in a decade, they're going to have to uh, uh, diversify a little bit and restore uh, some diversity of, uh, of journalism here. Yeah, one listener sent in a very short but very pointed note saying, who reads newspapers? But keep in mind, this is websites. I mean, a lot of the, the information um, environment, this used to be back in the day, these papers, especially what are now the post-media papers in a lot of big cities across the country, used to turn up a lot of stuff. They used to be at City Hall. They used to be all over the place. And a lot of what we understood as sort of the uh, the environment of journalism in this country came out of those papers. And that, of course, is greatly reduced now. But if they were to be more and so on, you start to see them. I mean, the idea behind this is that it will preserve them. One wonders uh, in what guise. Yes, well, uh, that's that's the problem. Uh, uh, I don't think there's any doubt that the future is, of media is online. It's just that old media seem to be first in the race to make it online. They, they've got the size, they've got the scale. Um, and it's quite possible that in 20 years, uh, you know, the Globe and Mail will still be the number one news brand in Canada. And um, I, I think that's the way it's going. So we have to we have to keep in mind that it's not just print. And uh, you're right. I mean, uh, hardly anybody reads print anymore, but most people still get the news and they get it online. And most of it actually comes from newspapers. So, I mean, in this case, what may this mean for, for those of us out here, you know, in, in those different jurisdictions? I think they've seen a lot of what's happened over the last, you know, eight to 10 years with those local papers and a lot of their communities. They're a lot thinner now than they used to be. They don't come as often. There are far fewer journalists working at those places. Um, what do you expect to happen then? What, what kind of impact could this have on staffing, on all those things, that, we, that on the quality of the papers themselves? Well, Ben, it's hard to imagine that things could get much worse than they are now. But each time I say that, I, I keep getting proved wrong. So I think, like I say, we have to we have to put our foot down here and and say uh, no. You've got to prove that this will, in, you know, improve uh, news provision in Canada. And it's uh, the most important thing I think is to get some competition back. Like I say, there's no competition. Now uh, in Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, and Ottawa, and if they were prepared to restore competition in those 
cities, along with uh, separating the Toronto Sun from the uh, National Post and the Toronto Star in Toronto, then I, I, I think that might be a reasonable give back. Uh, qu- quickly, Mark, what do you think's in this for the for for, for the Star for for the Star's owners? I'm not quite sure. Uh, like I say, it's it's hard to get at the uh, Star's um, financials these days. They they know much better than I do, but. Uh, they did sell their digital subsidiary vertical scope for several times more than what they paid for the entire company. So I can't imagine that they're, uh, you know, uh, one foot in the poorhouse. Um, but um, I think that perhaps there should be an inquiry into what's going on and force them to open their books like the Senate did in 1970, the Davy Committee on the Mass Media, and, and find out exactly what's going on here. Well, Mark, thanks so much for your insight on this. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, Well, today marks National Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, PTSD, Awareness Day. And, uh, you know, this is still something that we don't talk about enough. I think we often talk about it in the context of the military. Uh, of first responders at times, but this is a bigger problem, uh, exacerbated, we think, by the impacts of the pandemic, by the isolation and so on, and some of the mental health issues that we went through, all of us, uh, through the the height of the pandemic. Uh, But 5% of people in Canada report that a health professional has diagnosed them with PTSD, 5%. That's a lot of people. And that number is believed to be closer to 8% if you look at the results from StatsCan survey on mental health and stressful events that they did back in late 2021. And the number that's perhaps more alarming than that, and that's a pretty alarming number, is that more than 80% of those likely to have PTSD found it difficult to access the care they needed. And the pandemic, again, as I was mentioning, uh, exacerbated that lack of access to treatment and may have amplified symptoms for people with PTSD as well. It is a day that has profound meaning for my next guests because they spend the year uh, all year round, they try to raise awareness around PTSD. Andy Cook served with the Canadian Forces in Bosnia in the 1990s. He's gone on to have a long career in policing with York Regional Police in the greater Toronto area. He suffered from PTSD when he returned from that mission in Bosnia where he witnessed the horrors of war. But has long believed that wounds from the past can heal and tries to spread that message and help others. It's why he became an ambassador for Wounded Warriors Canada. And Steve Topham is National Partnership Director for Wounded Warriors Canada. And Andy and Steve join me now. Thank you so much both for your time tonight. Not a problem, yes. man. It's great to meet you. Uh, yes, thank you. Andy, tell me a bit about the meaning of this day because, you know, I think back to, you know, I think back 15 years to the time when I was in Afghanistan and PTSD, the conversation, it sort of began. But here we are and we have a national day to raise awareness and it feels like it's an important time uh, to take advantage of that. Well, absolutely. And, you know, uh, having spent that time in the in the military some years ago, I, I thought, you know, that this day would never come. But here we are. And it's it's a revelation. It's fantastic, you know, that we're here. Mental health is, uh, you know, such an important part of our lives that uh, if, if you're going to, you know, be employed in, you know, an organization, whether military or police, fire or EMS, that, um, you know, on average, I think statistics show that you're going to be exposed to about 400 uh, traumatic events throughout your career. So uh, it's it's important to uh, look after your mental health for sure. Yeah. And the stats I know are sobering right across the board from those who work, who are first responders to those who have military uh, experience to other facets of society. 
But you know a lot of stories behind those numbers as well, Andy, and, and I think that makes a difference. You know just how much some of your colleagues, both in policing and in the military, have suffered in silence, or at least did for a very long time. Uh, absolutely. And, and, you know, the stigma attached to it was very difficult. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, it all comes down to trust and having someone to trust to actually tell your story and, and be validated and understood. Because without that, then then we're, we would be just spinning our wheels. There was a time, I, I think, you know, early you know, 2015, 2016 or so, there was a bit of an epidemic with uh, first responders and, and veterans taking their own lives. Mm-hmm. And, and not that it was just specifically them. I mean, prior to that, I, I, my, my first exposure to a ramp ceremony was was at 19 years old, and I had no idea how to even put that into a context or, or what to do with those feelings. So what, what, what predominantly happens in that type of culture is you, you suppress it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can only suppress it for so long, and eventually it does rear its ugly head, and you have to deal with it later on in life. And... You know, my my involvement with Wounded Wars is was born from from some of those struggles. Steve, um, we often think of PTSD as being combat related, but our understanding has evolved a lot, right? I mean, there was a time I remember even back in in you know in the earlier part of this century where we didn't t- often talk about PTSD when it came to first responders, for instance. Uh, it has evolved a lot in the last uh, few decades. Almost oh, definitely, you know what we're seeing even throughout uh, the pandemic is this heightened concentration of people feeling isolated and alone. And especially within a community that was out there every day, still towing the, you know, the, the rope for us and, and making certain that we were safe and supported ourselves. Trauma is trauma, regardless of where it takes place, whether that is in, in the theater of war, um, you know, some of the actions and, and events that, you know, Andy would have participated in and been exposed to and, and his brothers and sisters, but also those that are on the front lines every day, whether that be our policing, firefighters or emergency services teams, they are out there every day and they're exposed to these events that will inevitably, you know, start to, to weigh on them. And one thing, Steve, I've noticed, too, is that, you know, the, the notion has expanded. You know, there are a lot of volunteers across this country who do that kind of work, who, who I imagine would have fallen through the cracks in the past. And there is heightened awareness about the need for them, too, to be included in all of this as well. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, we're doing our best to ensure that we provide those services to all uniformed servicemen and women from across the country, whether that be our border services or search and rescue that, you know, was just brought to the forefront recently with the events of the last week. And we're really there to provide those supports also to the civilian leads within those organizations. So we're trying to do what we can and recognize that we really can't do this alone. And we're partnering with incredible organizations within the space to ensure that we can expand the scope of what we're doing. Andy, tell me, what are the big challenges that remain? I think, you know, we, we first of all, there are new, you know, things happen and we've seen the deaths of many police officers this year that may have, you know, a, a heightened impact on on people in the police, in the policing business or the policing space for that matter. I, I mean, it feels like this sh- the conversation kind of shifts around a lot. Uh, but what are the big challenges that you're having these days when it comes to raising awareness and also making sure that people are getting the help they need? Well, I think one of the biggest challenges, you know, like most people don't know what they know until they know like it's right. and, and unless they're educated in in what happens to you and what's available after the fact and by who a lot of people just go about their business without you know any direction until something happens and then they ask for help and then it's well what's available to me 
Um, one of the things that we're doing at work here is, is you know, offering, you know, front-loading the mental health programming so that it, it sets them up for success, or at least in the direction that they know what to expect and they know um, what that feels like. And then we create the support groups uh, with with families to help them navigate through some of that mental health issue, health issues that they, they may encounter during their career. Because when one looks at the kind of things you know you're going to face, you know, as first responders or as uh, in the military, uh, it, it, it strikes me that, that PTSD can be something that is preventative as well as something that you react to, right? That you can you can try to equip people to, to deal with it beforehand as opposed to having to try to figure out uh, once they figure out there's been an issue to deal with it after the fact. Well, I think if it's predictable, it's, pre- it's preventable for sure. The before operational stress program, for instance, uh, has paid dividends for us here at work and uh, the organization and the police services board had recognized that it is a benefit to their membership to help them stay at work uh, and be healthy because the idea is it's 30 years is a long career and, and to you know experience a lot of those things you have to be able to or at least have some type of toolbox with these mental health uh, uh, programs in them that you can access here and there to help you uh, along and sometimes you just need a little bit of guidance um, or or just you know peer peer support has also been you know a, a great tool to assist people move forward because having personally uh, my own support groups are like my own personal peer support. It's it's great. It allows you to be able to, you know, talk it out loud and have someone say, hey, you know, you're right. Or have you tried this? And, and uh, you know, it really does. It does really pay, pay dividends. Yeah. People who understand the experience could talk to each other with no judgment, mm-hmm. right? Or at least you hope so. Oh, absolutely. I I I, uh, I was in Calgary last week on a, on a conference, and uh, I served in Calgary in the '90s, and I still know a lot of people that I surf with there. And you know, I, I we we got together and talked like it was just yesterday, and had laughs about the good old days, and raised a beer and or a drink to the the fallen that we'd lost along the way, whether it in combat or it's a suicide or or both. Like so, you know, you you have to remember them that way and carry on. And, Steve, when you look at some of the, of the ways that, that we need to, that you're raising awareness, the bike rides that you do are are, are, are fantastic. I mean, I know that uh, there's been a return to Bosnia at one point. You're just back from Italy. Tell me a bit about, about the whole notion of the bike rides and how, I guess, they not only raise awareness, but they also act as sort of a salve for people who, who need it. Yes, we're, we've been very fortunate in the communities that we've been able to create around our cycling events and our battlefield bike ride, as you mentioned, we just returned from Italy where we had 60 riders participating in a ceremonial ride um, up the Adriatic coast where funds were raised and, and more importantly, conversations were had. And what we found is that the family and community that comes out of these events, because we've got, we're bringing together individuals from, from different parts of society, but they're all having this shared experience that we find really allows them the opportunity to open up and share their stories. And this is something that the Ride for Mental Health that is happening August 19th is is really about. It's it's providing Canadians and their communities the opportunities to have these conversations about mental health and what it means to society to support and, and have a healthy first responder community as well as military. And one of the things that I really wanted to add to what Andy was saying earlier is you know, when we're talking about breaking down the stigma, it's something that I heard from our national patron, uh, General uh, Delaire, recently <laughs> was he speaks about the injury. You know, we often shy away from it and feel that it's 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 something that we can't handle. But one of the things that General Delaire spoke about was it being an honorable injury. And that's something that I really would like people to 
to take away from this is is that it is an honorable injury. It's something that is is that happens to one in the line of duty serving their communities. So this is our opportunity to say thank you on a national level and come together and ride in our communities and have those conversations. And, and it strikes me that that in in general society, there's a much better understanding now of what PTSD is and that the fact that it is indeed an honorable injury. I guess sometimes the difficulty is convincing those who suffered it that it's honorable, that it's not something to be embarrassed or ashamed of. Well, I, I can I can certainly attest to that. Um, you know, I have PTSD myself, um, but I don't look at it as a weakness. I, I, I look at it as a, as a, as a strength. I, I earned it. Um, and, I, and I think what I was doing at the time to earn it was just and right. Like to you know, you were talking earlier about you know return to the Balkans. Like I served in the Balkans in, mm-hmm. in the early nineties, um, just northwest of Sarajevo, and and just to witness genocide as as Romeo Dallaire did in Rwanda, um, and, and that's that moral injury. Wounded warriors offered an opportunity for me to go back and, and heal from that 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 experience. And you know, there were twenty five veterans on that ride that actually served there, so it was a very healing process. It's probably one of the most emotional and physically demanding things I've ever done in my life, but yeah. but I did it and, I, and I'm so much better for it. And, and it allowed me to, you know, in retrospect, look back and and acknowledge that what I did was enough. It, it was okay instead of just saying it was a waste of time and it was all for nothing. Yeah. I mean, I guess listening to you as well and having spoken about this in the past, the, the, the issue is that you don't take a few, you know, you don't take a few pills or do a six month course and it all goes away, right? This is a lifelong thing. Uh, absolutely. Uh, does it does it mean that it's it's any less impactful in my life? No, absolutely not. It's um it'll always be with me. Um, it's just the more time goes along, the the more uh, the easier it becomes. It becomes a diff- distant memory. But you know, without my life experiences, including those, I I, I wouldn't be who I am now. Which you know, I'm, I'm and I'm okay with. I've, I've come to, you know, uh, recognize that I, I am okay. Right. And I guess that's the message, right, to people out there who may be thinking that there are only dark days ahead, that it does get better if you acknowledge it and, and, and work with it. Absolutely. And, and you know, within my, my I oversee the recruit class, uh, their new hires were bringing in. I'm very open about my mental health and some of the struggles. And uh, and uh, when I tell them about my story that, you know, I can still stand in front of you and still, okay, I'm okay. You know, there is a light at the end of the tunnel as long as you have the right resources and the support network to, to, to manage through it. But I can tell you on the rides, whether it's the ride for mental health or the battlefield rides or or any of the other the charity rides that you're involved with, when when people talk to you and you tell them the experience, they will sit and listen because it is a lived experience and you cannot duplicate that. Anybody can talk about anything, but until you hear that story from their first hand, it's truly believable. And then people just can, they can share in that feeling and they actually feel what you're telling them versus just listening. Yeah, I, I had a great uncle who who served in the Second World War. He was Scottish, but I mean, he didn't talk about this stuff until he was in his eighties. You know, I mean, it was just wasn't talked about. And it's great now that we do have an opportunity to share those stories before they weigh really heavily on people. A last word to both of you, Steve. Just what you'd like listeners to know uh, on this National Day of, aware, of Awareness and about the ride for mental health coming up a little later this summer. Do recognize that there are programs and supports out there, and to reach out. You know, you're not alone. We do, you know, kind of run that hashtag in this together. We believe that everyone has a role to play in this and no one organization is going to be the 100% solution. So it's it's that opportunity again on August 19th to join us in support of our veteran and first responder communities as well as their families as we ride to challenge mental health and raise much needed funds and awareness. And that can be done at rideformentalhealth.ca 
There's no registration fee or minimum fundraising limits. We do have a ride that's taking place in Ottawa that day that does have a registration requirement, but we're really looking forward to getting together face-to-face with our community and supporters after three years of lockdown and not being able to, to host an event. Of course. And Andy, to you as well, last word. Ah, you know the ride for mental health. It's it's one of those pinnacle rides. Uh, it's what got got me started into cycling, and I got to give uh, kudos to the commissioner of the OPP, Tom Creek. He he nudged me in that direction. Uh, my first, you know, uh, ride for mental health was the first iteration was the High of Heroes ride, and I remember being locked out at the side of the road with cramps and and Steve Top. I'm rolling my legs with a rolling pin. So <laughs> the rest is history. But uh, I love it. It's it's um yeah. And my parting words is you know you're not alone. We're in this together. Well, Andy and Steve, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks, man. Uh, born and raised, uh, born in Vancouver, or born in London, rather, but raised in Vancouver, Tom Rackman really burst onto the literary scene with The Imperfectionist back in 2010. It was a bestseller that was all about an international English language newspaper ba- based in Rome about all this cast of characters that worked there. It was really drawn in his own years working as a foreign correspondent for the Associated Press. He followed that with three more novels, and now he is back living in London where COVID lockdowns were severe, as you may remember. It's from that isolation that he produced a new novel called The Imposters that is out today here in Canada. It returns to the idea of writers, novels, and what purpose they serve in this ever noisier, more cluttered, more more confrontational and fast-moving information environment. And while the setting is in London and the topic is writing, it may seem autobiographical, Rackman instead tells the story through an unlikely main character, a lonely 73-year-old woman, a Dutch novelist called Dora Frenhofer. She's had some minor successes in the past, but now is left wondering what, if any purpose, her book served and what legacy she'll leave behind. And it's through Dora she sets out to write her last novel that we meet a whole cast of other characters from around the world, the imposters, so to speak. But to boil it all down, it is a book about writing, and where the writer and the novel fit in in the grand scheme of things, a quarter of the way nearly through this 21st century. Uh, and Tom Rackman joins me now. Tom, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. This is, an, I mean, I, I know that uh, you're right in the middle of, of sort of having to promote the book, but it's a really interesting novel. It's, it's you know, a, a, again, it's it's a it's a book written about writers. And, and that's an interesting thing to tackle. And you wrote it, and we spoke to each other during the pandemic. It was a time of of isolation. I know that writers are used to that, but uh, but what, what were you hoping to kind of look at in this one? Because you've touched on many different subjects over the years, and this one felt like, you know, this whole idea of what is the author all about? Yeah, and I think that the, one of the questions really that I had is what is the work, what is the author for? What is the author of literature doing nowadays? And I, I asked that rhetorically. I don't have an answer, but I was looking around at the culture at large, like we all were during COVID times of, you know, sitting there in our in our rooms and looking at our little screens and thinking about all the people out there going completely mad and wondering what on earth was wrong with people and longing for some of them in the room as well at the same time. It was a very, obviously, it was a very strange mindset, but it was also one that, I, that reflected, made me reflect a lot about the writing life and wondering quite what place there was for it in an incredibly noisy information environment where you've got endless streams of images and clips 
and people shouting and people making you laugh and people making you want to run away and everything all at once. And within that, you have still this little group of lonely writers. Maybe they're not all lonely. Maybe it's just me sitting around trying to put down something that would interest people, that would draw them into a story. But that requires a good deal of concentration and focus. And it's a it's sort of like a collaboration in a way, because the author puts down the story and the characters and all that, but you really need the readers to be able to attend to it and think about it and enter into the the narrative that you have and the, the yarn that you've stretched out for them and to follow it and to, to enact and bring it to life in their own heads. But that habit is harder and harder to maintain when people are, are constantly being pinged with notifications and, and warnings and news alerts and, and so many other competing stories going on uh, in their pockets and on their TVs and everywhere else. And so I couldn't help but think this, this field of the culture that had always felt so valuable and important to me, I, I was wondering, where is the place for it anymore? And and it's impossible then not to think, is there a place for me anymore? Is there a place for me to do this stuff? And I wanted to to think that through, to think about the the incredible importance of literature as it has been and wonder where it fits now. And But also to separate it a bit from my personal story and therefore to create a fictional character who who clearly isn't me and, and it comes from a different perspective in this case a 73 year old dutch uh, novelist towards the end of her career and possibly towards the end of her life and i used that character as a way to explore both the both what it's like to write a book but also what it's like to be a writer today what what struck me about it too is that you know, it, for someone of your age or our age, for instance, or someone younger, or novelists that are sort of have their, um, maybe maybe have their their fingers on the pulse of things, and it's hard to keep your finger on the pulse of anything these days. It moves so quickly. But that for for your character Dora, the Dutch novelist, as you're approaching the end of your life, it must be. It was interesting to use that because I felt like she was even more puzzled about what it is she should be writing about and what it was all because things had changed so much from the time that she had put pen to paper in trying to write this last book. It was an interesting way of looking at it, that this idea of what does it mean to write and where does your legacy lie, especially now with everything having sped up so quickly. Yeah, and I, 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 it's an interesting point that you make. I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but I think what you say is right. I, I suppose that I have often been drawn to endings. You know, I, I'm a writer who's interested in endings, both in the book, but also in the culture. And my very first novel, The Imperfectionist, was sort of about the the end of the old way of newspapering and the way that the, this extraordinary new culture, online culture, kind of crashed into an old world and ended up just destroying it or changing it forever. I wrote that book because I found myself in that world, uh, starting to work in journalism in the late 1990s and then seeing the introduction of the internet and seeing how it affected everything. And I suppose that part of me wonders whether my past 10, 15 years in the literary world has been a glimpse of something that isn't quite the same thing, but maybe I'm seeing another area of the culture that is that is being shouldered hard out of the way by the technology in the new world that is rushing at us at such speed that it's almost hard to digest. It's hard to digest two days ago, but you're already on to tomorrow. And it's it's kind of exhausting and overwhelming. And I suppose that that makes it hard for people to focus on reading a novel, but I would argue it makes it even more important because it's so 
vital for us to be able to kind of pause the pace of more and more and more and just think, think a little bit more deeply and engage in, in an activity that I hope has a little more depth than a lot of the surface pings that we're getting constantly. I was interested to hear you say that you like Dora, because I always wonder, I've never written a book, so I've always wondered how an author engages with the character. How long did it take you to sort of settle on Dora as as the protagonist in this in this one? I think that she was probably there really from the outset. I, it was uh, I had the idea of how this book would work, and it takes a while before the character is fully formed. But I had the notion of a character like her, and I always find that it's really through the writing of it and dropping the the sketch of a character into the sketch of a story, and suddenly the story starts to come to life, and the story then compels that character to act in some way or another, which then defines them. And bit by bit, you start to really know who it is you're you're dealing with. And the character, after a while, speaks in a way that you can, that almost like it's writing itself, because you know in that situation exactly what that person would, would come up with. But as you mentioned, it's a book as well that is lots of different stories that she's telling. And so it's both her, but there's also um, it's also her life in an indirect way because those stories turn out to be little bits of glimpses of her past, people who she's maybe lost touch with and she's wondering about or imagining. And as you read the book, you realize that she's writing these stories that you're reading, but you don't entirely know exactly how they connect to her in the present until you you keep going and then eventually it reveals itself. Yes, we don't want you to give away the the ending, Tom. <laughs> never, never. There's some interesting characters in it, though, that feel more like you, or, or feel like more like experiences that you've had. You know, promoting books, for instance, is one thing that you've talked about a lot, which is difficult to emerge from the isolation of a pandemic and the isolation of writing a novel to then all of a sudden be thrust out to talk to everyone about it, as as if it was sort of a public thing uh, instead of a very private one. Yeah, that's right. There's, I think, probably the character you're alluding to uh, is. This character, Danny, who is uh, right in the middle of the book, there's a chapter about an incredibly pretentious Brooklynite novelist who lands himself, quite rather to his surprise, at an Australian literary festival where he believes that finally he's going to be feted as the great author that he always longed to be. But things turn out rather more humiliatingly. Anyway, first of all, and in, in your, you're saying that um, you're comparing me to the incredibly pretentious <laughs> Brooklyn... It. Well, the I, I was to, wondering if you'd ever had check. ever had Malala Yousafzai appear next door to you, though. <laughs> that was I have not met Malala, although she appears in the story. But but yeah. I think that comparing me to a pretentious Brooklyn novelist is unfair because I'm not from Brooklyn. But but flogging the book, the book. Aside from that, it's fair enough. And I think that that one was absolutely based on real experiences that I had. Clearly, there there it's told for for humor and satire of the absurdities of the publishing world and the absurdities of book publishing where you're sort of expected to personify an author in certain ways and um, and thrust yourself before the public and and on the one hand are, are expected to be a noble artist and on the other hand are expected to be a salesman for your own inner life and it feels very very weird and uncomfortable because i would argue or guess that probably a lot of writers myself included got into writing in the first place, in large part because we're not the kind of people who like to to jump up to the lectern and shout for everybody's attention and, and wave our arms and have everybody staring at us. We're more the types who like to 
to scurry off to a little room and compose sentences very carefully and figure out exactly what we want to say and exactly how and then bring that out and hope that we've uh, skewered our enemies a little bit and appraised our friends and maybe told a good story or two, but not necessarily shouting it and begging people to pay attention. But that's kind of what you're expected to do. So I wanted to to, to amusingly, I hope, uh, expose that that corner of the writer's life today. So, I mean, the the title, people always will ask you about the title, obviously, so this may be a bit of a, 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 bit of a common question. But at the end of it, uh, one feels that, that they're not imposters. I mean, or or everyone is in some ways, but how can you tell stories if you don't impose, if you're not an imposter in some way? Yeah, I, I think that there are lots of possible meanings for imposter. Uh, you could think of these imposters as the, these characters who keep leaping into the novel about Dora. But at the same time, in a larger sense, when you're reading, I think that you're always drawn into the story. But There's another element of it, which is that you're always kind of peeking through the words and the sentences to try to figure out who is the human being who wrote that. But in another way, in a larger way, you could think of of the writer as a bit of an imposter at any time when there are loud and clamorous conversations going on in society about all sorts of other things, about what we should do about building roads and sending armies and and um, arguing over culture and arguing over politics. and, And suddenly some... A uh, nerdy person uh, like me on the edges stands up and says, "Well, what about this?" And it's they're they're daring to impose their own uh, thoughts on the world and and hoping that somebody would be interested and would be would be maybe um, transported a little bit by it. Well, Tom, congratulations on the latest book. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Ben. <laughs> Well, if you grew up with those old Spider-Man cartoons, I used to come home and watch those uh, at lunch. Uh, during school this was in the 70s those were made in the 60s you remember the psychedelic tones the repeated frames the same frame over and over again of spidey propelling himself through the city skies the series was actually a u.s canada co-production with the voice work being done here and i loved it i mean part of the reason i went into journalism but i've worked for a few j jonah Jamesons over the over the years as well was i loved peter parker taking those photos i thought it was awesome um and then this spot even there were spider-man comics but there wasn't a lot of big spider-man stuff other than that for many many years then of course now the franchise is just massive you know as the spider flies it is a universe away now the sort of master artistry and technology that goes in to the latest generation of animated spider-man movies uh beginning with 2017's into the spider-verse and now with the latest one across the spider-verse it's 100 million dollar budget imagine you could have created the entire original cartoon series from the 60s uh with about 99 million nine hundred ninety thousand dollars to spare i think uh but it's something to behold it really is widely wildly successful and absolutely beautiful to watch the latest is taken in i think more than 500 million dollars already since it's, since its release at the beginning of the month um now each universe that spidey travels through in these new ones or this new one looks like it was created by different animators in different styles all of them paying tribute to some era of the franchise or something that devoted fans 
or maybe even not so devoted fans will probably recognize from somewhere. And that includes one that's really got people talking, and that is animated Lego Peter Parker and Spider-Man. And that's where our next guest comes in. Vancouver Island's Keegan Seamart is just 18, but he's been working on the software that is featured in that Lego sequence since he was 14. Uh, it's called MechaFace. I hope I got that right. He'll correct me if I didn't. Uh, and he began to share it on his YouTube channel. Uh, and he's built up nearly 90,000 subscribers doing that. And it was noticed by others. And lo and behold, now here we are in 2023. And it is part of this incredible Spider-Man experience. And Keegan Seymour joins me now. Uh, Keegan, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. How cool. How cool is that? Uh, it, must, it must be pretty. I mean, you've seen the movie clearly, but it must be pretty, a pretty wild ride. Oh, yeah, for sure. Such a good movie. Tell me about how you about how you got into this because I don't know whether people understand about you know I, maybe maybe some of the listeners have seen the Lego movie but I think for most they'll picture Lego as being building blocks right so how did this all begin for you uh, four years ago? Oh yeah, it actually started when I first saw the Lego movie when I was younger. I, I really enjoyed the movie, and when I got home, I went on YouTube and saw a behind the scenes video, and it showed them how they made it. So it really inspired me to start trying to create animations, and eventually it made me create a. Uh, uh, animation software so you could animate Lego faces and I, that's just really what inspired me and to create something like that Yeah, I mean I guess what happened was you noticed something was missing right and I, I don't fully you'll have to explain what you've done but you noticed that there was a gap there and you and you filled it yeah yeah so I when I started to do Lego animation um, I noticed that there's no way to do 2D animation on the faces so I decided to experiment and figure out ways to do it. And once I finally found a good way to do it, I decided to sell it for other people to also use and, and to use into their animation so that they don't have to have that problem, too, of trying to figure it out. So I tried to fill that gap and uh, make it easier for everyone to animate. I mean, the way you make it, you make it sound as if you just tinkered around for a few minutes and there it was. But I'm sure this <laughs> took a very long time, right? Oh, yeah, it took a month of research. And how long just to, to – what, what did you actually have to do to make it work? Is it just programming? So a lot of programming and doing a rigging in a 3D software, which is like kind of like a puppet for like, uh, right. for like sculptures, but in a computer. So I had to figure out that and make it all work and make it go on a 3D object. And eventually I got it all figured out. Wow. And, and, and then you shared it, right? I mean, or you, you, or you, you were doing, you were posting it to YouTube and other people started to see it, right? Yeah, I, I shared it on uh, a website to sell it. And eventually people saw my YouTube channel and were inspired to start doing 3D animation too, which uh, brings me to the, the scene in the movie the, where they was in Lego. That kid who animated that scene actually was inspired from my videos to start creating animations. So he started animating, and he he contacted me for some help, and so I helped uh, him learn and helped him use my add-on, which was the face animation stuff. Right, Preston, Preston Matanga, yeah. right? Yeah. Preston. So 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 he uses you know you created it, you've talked to him, you kind of mentor him a bit, and then he starts to use it. Then what happens? Because something very big happens, and he doesn't tell you until until it's like a magic reveal by him. Oh yeah. So originally he create, recreated the Spider-Verse trailer in Lego using my add-on and also other features and put it on Twitter. The directors of the film noticed it and, uh, and retweeted it so other people could see it. I found that very interesting when I first saw that. 
But uh, little did I know, eventually, when it was the red carpet debut of the movie, he sent photos of him to me, uh, of him at the red carpet. And I was really confused because he's from Toronto. So I eventually And he's in L.A. at this. This this is L.A., right, Keegan? Oh, yeah. He's in L.A. at this point? Yeah. Yeah, he went to L.A. just casually. So I saw that he was there, and I was really confused. But after the film premiered, he sent a photo of the credits, and it showed his name in it. And I was like, there's no way... Yeah, I was just. You, you, you taught him well. You taught him well. Yeah, I was so proud, but I wasn't yet sure if my work was going to be in it. So, so I wasn't sure by then. He wouldn't confirm it. How does that? He wouldn't confirm it to you, right? Because now let me get. Because I think if I'm reading, I read all all the reviews that the Lego part of it came as a real surprise to people because it wasn't in a lot of the a lot of the run up to the to the new movie. There wasn't this Lego scene, and all of a sudden there it was, and people got really excited about it. Did it come in late? Um, it definitely came in late. He actually missed the original email back in the beginning of this year, and he only found it like a few months before the movie's premiere. So, yeah, I had no clue about it because it wasn't in trailers either. So when I went in to see the movie the day after the premiere, I was so in awe like, and so surprised to see my work on the big screen. I was so happy. So Preston had this email sitting in his inbox for several months <laughs> saying, hey, we'd love to use your animation in the new Spider-Man movie. Really? Yeah, he actually missed it. He told me about this. It, was, it ended up in his junk, so he missed it. And he, he eventually got a DM from one of the producers saying, hey, oh, by the way, we emailed you. So he eventually saw it and went, went right to work. Keegan, I've always heard, you know, I'm, I'm older. I've always heard, don't email anyone under 30. <laughs> that's always, that's <laughs> kind of a, a, a natural thing to do. Don't email anyone under 30. They, they won't see it. They won't see it. That uh, true, yeah. That's, yeah, that's great. I mean, d- does this benefit? I mean, I benefit. Um, I mean, it's you developed a software, you sold it, so other people are using it. Does it, does, is there, uh, how do, is there, is there, a, a, beyond the recognition, is there a reward for you in all this? Um. At the moment, there's, they didn't put me in the credits, but uh, that's just because the kid didn't think of that. But it's all right, because uh, the reward for me is just seeing my work on the big screen, because that's what I've worked for. Uh, the reason why I do all my animation is so that it can eventually end up on the big screen, and, and also so that I can help other younger animators uh, create their animations quicker. Yeah, I mean, you're only 18, so you're helping. I mean, Preston is Preston's younger than you are, right? Yeah, he's fourteen. I'm very proud of him. Wow! Imagine, imagine you know, the, you know, the the combined intellectual and and creative juices of two of two people whose ages don't add up to thirty three made it onto the <laughs> Spider Man movie. I think that's pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah, I didn't think of it like that. Sure. So I, I gather that when you decided to apply for film school, <laughs> you had quite the <laughs> you had quite the quite the reel to show them. Oh, no, yeah, I remember uh, showing them. I applied last summer, actually, and uh, I already had a bunch of work, and they were, like, immediately, ex- like, accepted me because I own a YouTube channel, right, like you said before, called C-Turns Animations, and I post all these animations I make for people to enjoy, and basically, they're, like, a bunch of one-minute-long animations with stories, and that I try to make look really nice. So I put those into my uh, portfolio and submitted my application and they loved it. And the guy called me back and saying, like, I really love like the Lego stuff because I love the Lego movie. So it made me really happy to see other people uh, share the same interests. 
that's a, I mean, so the Lego movie is what inspired you, right? I still feel like the Lego movie came out a few years ago, but I guess it's older than that yeah. now. Uh, so what would you like to do? I mean, clearly you, you got it. It's all ahead of you. What would you like to go when you start? Is there anything you'd like to, to delve into? Is animation what you want to do? Yeah, because I'm going to film school for 3D animation. And eventually mm-hmm. when, I, when I graduate from there, I'm, I'm hoping to work in the animation industry, to work on an animated film like Spider-Verse. It's really something I've been wanting to do for the longest time, so I'm really excited to be able to do that soon. Yeah, I have to say, I looked at your YouTube channel, and, and you know, uh, yeah, it's really, really good. I, I mean, it's it's excellent, right? I I I, don't, I didn't know you created these all yourself. I mean, it's it's. I mean, obviously you had, but I have no idea how you'd do it. <laughs> it's, it, it looks it looks like the real thing, right? Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. Appreciate that. I put a lot of work into it, even though I'm self-taught and just with a few YouTube videos to learn. I'm very proud of it. So you you didn't have you didn't have what Preston had. You had no one mentoring you. You did this by yourself. You taught yourself. Oh yeah, because I ha- I actually ended up creating the 3D Lego animation community, uh, which didn't exist before. So I created a bunch of uh, assets and and just things people can use to get started. And I created a community that has over a two thousand people in it now. That's remarkable. And mm-hmm. what what like what do your parents say? What do your siblings say? What do your friends say? They must they must be in, must be pretty impressed. Yeah, my 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 parents are really proud of me. They always talk about it with their people at work. And my friends, most people at school don't realize it. But when they like they are like, oh, you you do three animation, but then they don't realize they actually have a YouTube channel. But when they find out, they're like, what? Like that's you're so talented. They always say to me, they're like, yeah, most people just joke around about it and they don't realize. Yeah, it's it's Citrine. So C I T R I N E apostrophe S animations. Uh, Citrine's animations. You can find it on YouTube. You, you will join eighty seven point nine thousand other subscribers. By the way, which is uh, which is great. So what what for you in the short term? Have you seen the movie more than once? Or are you going to go back? Or what's oh, going on? I've seen the movie three times, and I hope to go double that again. So right. good. Because you finished school, right? I think you finished school. Yeah, just finished school. Um, today was my last day. Today was your last day. So this yeah. is it. You graduated high school. Mm-hmm, yeah. So it's going to be straight off to film school at the end of summer. Oh, well, give yourself a little time to put your feet up, Keegan. <laughs> I recommend it. <laughs> I think you're going to be really busy going forward. Um, oh, Keegan Sivard, congratulations. Uh, f- fantastic. And uh, yeah, that's, that's what a great story. And thanks for sharing it with me. Thank you so much for having me on.